Last month I lectured to you, glad to see you all here, on Alexander the Great, the greatest general of all, all time. Horatio Nelson of England was the greatest admiral of all time. I hope that all of you know the difference between a general and an admiral. Some of my students used to be confused about that and used to use the terms interchangeably. The general fights on land, the admiral fights on the sea. The general musters and commands armies, the admiral musters and commands navies and warships. Though Nelson's rivals for the designation of the greatest admiral of all time are not well known and not even Western, Perhaps at the outset we should mention them. Isoroku Yamamoto of Japan, who planned the Pearl Harbor attack and went down to defeat at Midway in 1942. Nelson never lost a battle. Cheng Ho of Ming Dynasty, China, who discovered America in 1421, long before Columbus, and also explored Antarctica and Australia, and was the first to round the Cape of Good Hope and to pass through the Straits of Magellan. I will describe his little-known exploits revealed in several recent books by Gavin Menzies of England in a later lecture. If you go to London today, you will find Trafalgar Square, named for Nelson's greatest victory, won on October 21, 1805. That victory was won over the Spanish and French navies, sailing from Napoleon, who sought to conquer the whole world. Speaking of the English Navy against Napoleon, the great authority on naval warfare, Alfred Thayer Mahan, an American, wrote, quote, those distant storm-beaten ships on which Napoleon never looked stood between him and the dominion of the world, end quote. The Battle of Trafalgar saved England from invasion and established Great Britain as mistress of the seas and the greatest power on earth for a full century. 19th, and master of an empire on which the sun never set. The Battle of Trafalgar prevented Napoleon from conquering the world. There's good evidence that Napoleon did deliberately uh, plan to conquer the whole world. The nearest land to the site of the critical, this critical naval battle was Cape Trafalgar in Spain, from which it takes its name. Nelson had formed his captains into a band of brothers whom he inspired to greatness as all true leaders do. He faced 33 of the most powerful warships then afloat. Thank you. In his day, uh, battleships sailed in an inflexible line. He had done it before at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent in 1797. As his fleet went into action, at the Battle of Trafalgar, he sent up a signal, England expects that every man will do his duty, and they did do their duty superbly that day. By afternoon, he had captured or sunk 18 of the Spanish and French battleships. Not one of them ever sailed again under his old fl own flag. Nelson lay on the quarterdeck, quarterdeck, his spine shot through. As the sun set, he died. His last words were, thank God I've done my duty. On that day off Cape Trafalgar, Horatio Nelson changed the history of the world by preventing Napoleon and his French heirs to the most destructive revolution of all time from conquering it. He was and is England's greatest naval hero. 
The Napoleonic Wars were a mighty epical struggle. Some have called them the, call this the First World War. From our own wars, we can appreciate the impact when the news of what had happened on October 21st, 1805, arrived in England. It had an impact as great as the news of the surprise Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, had on America, or the terrorist attack on our airliners and the World Trade Center on 9-11 just a few years ago. I will now read to you from the introduction to the latest biography of Nelson by John Sugden. By the way, I saw this quotation uh, when reading in the library of a cruise ship to Norway. Uh, I read it there and I said, I've got to put this in one of my lectures for the college. This is what Sugden said. Quote, never recall, Secretary John Barrow of the Admiralty, can I forget the shock I received on opening the boardroom door the morning after the arrival of the dispatches when Morriston called out, glorious news, the most glorious victory our brave Navy ever achieved, but Nelson is dead. To the British people and to many others fighting Napoleon, the death of Nelson in 1805 was one of those ineffaceable events that live as long as memory. The nation won its greatest naval victory and went into mourning. Britons of every stamp remembered where they heard the news and the thoughts it inspired. End quote. Just so do I remember when my father told me about the attack on Pearl Harbor when I was just nine years old in the library of our home in Maine. Just so do I remember when the news of the terrorist attack of 9-11 came when I was lecturing into a class right here. Continuing the quotation from John Sugden, quote, the Wordsworth famous poets, William and Dorothy Wordsworth, who were brother and sister, were in their native Lake District. Dorothy burst into tears, while her brother refused to believe that Nelson was dead until he had run into a nearby inn to confirm the tidings. A partially unreconstructed radical, William Wordsworth did not approve of all that Nelson had done, but reflected deeply enough to compose a poetic tribute to the happy warrior. Coleridge, another great writer of the time, was in Naples when the news reached him. When he, meaning Nelson, died, then no man was a stranger to another, for all were made acquaintances by the right of a, rights of a common anguish, he wrote. Never can I forget the sorrow and consternation that lay on every countenance. Numbers stopped and shook hands with me because they had seen tears on my cheeks and conjectured that I was an Englishman, and several, as they held my hand, themselves burst into tears. But it was Robert Southey who perhaps best captured the national mood. He wrote, The death of Nelson was felt in England as something more than a public calamity, he remembered from the perspective of another eight years. Men started at the intelligence and turned pale as if they had heard of the loss of a dear friend. An object of our affection and admiration, of our pride and of our hopes, was suddenly taken from us, and it seemed as if we had never till then known how deeply we loved and reverenced him. That huge sense of loss manifested itself in a torrent of memorabilia and a multiplicity of monuments. Horatio Nelson and the Norfolk commoner was raised in stone like the heroes of antiquity. Great columns, arches, and statues were erected in far distant places. 
Some, though weathered and crumbling, still stand as mute testimony to the great debt the British public felt they owed to a man now dead. More than 30 substantial monuments were created in a vast and enduring surge of grief and pride. State patronage contributed, but most of the memorials depended upon public subscriptions and private enthusiasm and took many forms. A rough granite pillar 12 feet high was hauled on rollers from Aird's Bay in Scotland by local iron workers and erected on a hill at Tainalt in Argyll and Butte. 1,200 men of the sea fencibles, a kind of naval home guard, were reported to have thrown off a 20-foot wall in just five hours on November 10, 1805, and a high tower built on Portadown Hill overlooking Britain's greatest, great naval base at Portsmouth was financed by veterans of the Battle of Trafalgar. The history of those monuments is instructive. They did more than remind new generations of a dead hero. They expressed the nation itself in an uncomplicated patriotism that for long sustained it. The citizens who raised those stones saluted the man who had rescued them from foreign domination. He stood for freedom and national endeavor. He was the very epitome of the greatest of Britain, a founder of its security and worldwide influence. Enemies certainly understood whether rival powers are anti-colonialists. In 1940, Hitler talked about dismantling the famous column in Trafalgar Square and shifting it to Berlin as a concrete symbol of Britain's defeat. While 26 years later, Irish Republicans blew up the impressive pillar and statue that had been a focal point of Dublin for more than a century. Both Bridgetown and Barbados and Montreal and Canada have talked about moving their huge Nelson statues to obscure locations where they are less capable of offending nationalist sentiment, end quote. Nelson was not only the victor of Trafalgar, he was a minister's son from Norfolkshire in England who went to sea at the age of 12. He ended up in the Mediterranean, that sea which was always the key to Britain's empire. In 1793, the French Revolution reached its height of horror in the reign of terror, and Nelson was sent to the French port of Toulon, where he personally beheld its victims who had risen against the revolution and were ruthlessly massacred. Quote, old and young, sick and well, ruined and destitute, end quote, the refugees from Toulon fled to Livorno in Italy, where Nelson saw them. Now he knew what he was really fighting against. It was part of his essential preparation for preventing the heir to the French Revolution from conquering the world and doing to the men, women, and children of England what the revolutionaries had done to their defeated foes at, uh, foes at Toulon. In July 1794, Nelson took part in the British conquest of the French island of Corsica, home of Napoleon, and lost the sight of his right eye when it was struck by a blast of sand from a sandbag when a shell hit it. He served under Lord Samuel Hood, who in a battle in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in June 1794 had been the first to attack the enemy's line of battle at an angle so as to break it. Nelson greatly admired Lord Hood, whom he considered England's finest admiral, and learned from his winning maneuver using it to provide his own supreme naval victories. 
In February 1797, Nelson sailed with the fleet of Sir John Jervis at a turning point in the Napoleonic Wars. Before this battle, Jervis said, quote, a victory is essential to England at this moment, end quote. Fifteen British battleships faced 27 Spanish. Good odds, for the British Navy and the Napoleonic Wars always expected to win when the odds against them were less than two to one. That Navy was probably the finest military service the world has ever seen. Informed of the odds, Jervis said dauntlessly, quote, the die is cast. If there were 50 sail of the line, I would go through them, end quote. Nelson was the man who went through them. He led the British line of battle. Jervis had measured his unique abilities. Nelson turned so as to break the enemy line, just as he was later to do at Trafalgar. The Spanish warships were gigantic. They included the world's only four-deck battleship, rated at 130 guns, and six three-deckers of 112 guns each. Quote, every one of them larger than the most powerful of Jervis's ships, the 100-gun victory, end quote. Then Nelson led his battleship, the Captain 74, to the rear. This was when he broke all precedent by turning out of the line alone. Not one British ship followed him in the unexpected and precedent-breaking turn. Nelson knew that his commander, Jervis, favored this action as the battle developed. Then Nelson crashed into the fouled enemy battleships San Nicolas 80 and San Josef 112, swept their decks with a withering fire and called for borders away. Nelson, swinging his sword, led them himself, though he was a thin, small man. He captured the San Nicolas by charging across the deck to the San Josef, a feat unique in British naval annals. No one else ever did that. Like Alexander, Nelson could fight hand-to-hand. -hand. His exploit won the battle, which made Jervis Lord St. Vincent and Nelson a rear admiral and provided the victory then essential to England. Later in 1797, Nelson took a bullet in the elbow during an unsuccessful attack on the Spanish island of Tenerife in the Canary Islands, which required the amputation of his right arm, the second serious wound he had received. One year later, in 1798, Napoleon sailed for Egypt, saying that all the world's great empires had been made in the east. He took Malta on the way. Nelson commanded the sea around Malta, which lies almost exactly in the middle of the Mediterranean. Later, he helped to make this island nursery of heroes part of the British Empire. Behind Napoleon, sailing for Egypt, came Nelson in hot pursuit. On the way, he passed the French fleet with Napoleon on board in the middle of a dark night. If he had had daylight, Nelson would have captured Napoleon and changed the history of the world sooner. But in the end, it was Nelson who really defeated Napoleon, almost as though they had dueled personally. In Egypt in 1798, French Admiral Bruet brought up the French battleships and anchored them in Aboukir Bay near the mouth of the Nile River, under what he thought to be the protection of shore batteries. But Nelson brought up his fleet and told his captains, that we shall succeed is certain. Nelson never slowed or hesitated, but attacked immediately. With magnificent seamanship, his warships sailed between the anchored French warships and the shore. There wasn't much room to do this, but Nelson planned out every aspect of the attack, 
with his captains. His brilliant maneuver left the French shore batteries handcuffed, unable to fire on the English without hitting their own ships. It was the most annihilating victory the British Navy ever won, even more so than the Falder, Trafalgar. The giant French flagship Lorient blew up at sunset. At dawn the next day, quote, it was seen that Bruet's line of battle had vanished overnight, end quote. There were no French battleships left, and Napoleon was marooned in Egypt, from which he could escape only by deserting his men, most of whom never got back home. Later in 1801, Nelson sailed into the Baltic Sea. Several Baltic countries, led by the Tsar of Russia, had formed the League of Armed Neutrality against Great Britain. The nominal commander of the British fleet was Sir Hyde Parker. Nelson was his second. The Danes, leading members of the League of Armed Neutrality, had 11 battleships moored in the harbor of their capital city of Copenhagen on the Baltic in a long line covered by shore batteries at both ends. The position was very much like that of Abukir Bay. Parker would not attack. Nelson has always urged attack. The challenge of Copenhagen was very similar to the challenge of the French fleet at Abukir Bay. Shoals off Copenhagen threatened the British fleet, but Nelson, as always a superb seaman, knew a way around them. Nelson's flag captain, Foley, had led his attack on the French at Abukir Bay. Now he was leading another Nelson attack on the Danish fleet at Copenhagen. Sir Hyde Parker signaled Nelson to break off the action and retire. Nelson told his flag captain, You know, Foley, I have only one eye. Then he put his telescope to his blind eye and said, I really don't see the signal. Keep the flags for close action flying. Just as the French flagship had blown up in Egypt, so the Danish flagship now blew up in Copenhagen. The Crown Prince of Denmark came out to the British fleet to offer an armistice and begin a discussion of surrender, for he had no navy left. Nelson had destroyed it at one blow. A few days later, the Tsar of Russia, who had formed the League of Armed Neutrality, was assassinated, and the League was immediately dissolved. Afterwards, men said, Nelson Copenhagen the Danes. The British made Nelson a baron for his glorious victory over the French fleet in Egypt at Abukir Bay near the Nile. Now Napoleon, returning to France, returned to France by a blockade runner, was planning the invasion of England, or what he grandly called the army of the coast of the ocean. But to invade England, he had to draw the defending English warships away. But Napoleon, though a master of land warfare, did not understand the sea. He sent an admiral named Villeneuve to strike toward the valuable British sugar islands in the West Indies, trying to decoy the British fleet away from England. If his army crossed the English Channel, Napoleon said, it would decide the fate of the universe. But Villeneuve was like a child in the hands of Nelson, who would not be decoyed and was ready to decide the fate of the universe in his own element. The great admiral went immediately in pursuit, chasing Villeneuve across the Atlantic and back, sailing 135 miles a day and frightening the inexperienced and rusty seamen of the French fleet out of their wits. These ships Napoleon had chased across the Atlantic and back, thereby destroying the fighting morale of their crews. With the same ships, he later defeated at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 at the cost of his life.
Few men have died so nobly and written their names so large upon the pages of history as Horatio Nelson. Nelson was not a Catholic, but he saved the Catholic Church, which the French Revolution and Napoleon had sworn to destroy, and would have destroyed were it not for Nelson's victory at Trafalgar. Before Nelson won that battle, Napoleon had imprisoned the Pope, Pius VII. When the war ended and Napoleon had fittingly surrendered to a warship of the British Navy named Bellerophon and was imprisoned for the rest of his life on St. Helena Island in the South Atlantic, the most isolated bit of land in the then known world, Pope Pius VII was still gloriously reigning. He outlived the would-be world conqueror by two years.